Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome, everybody, to another subcast. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir John Curtis, a professor at Strathclyde uh, University, a man who needs no introduction. Uh, John has been analysing, observing, writing about, commentating on British politics for a long time, is the leading authority on uh, British politics, and in particular on cephology, on the study of elections and voting. You will, of course, uh, know John from uh, the exit poll, uh, presenting the results of uh, general elections to the country. Um, and uh, I know John uh, as uh, really the leading uh, voice in, in British political science uh, in, in terms of how we analyse uh, and study voting and elections. So, John, welcome to the subcast. Thank you for that very warm introduction, Matthew. <laughs> Let's just get straight in. Um, we are talking on the day when Boris Johnson is resigning, probably at the moment. Uh, Liz Truss is uh, coming in as the 56th uh, Prime Minister. Um, I just want to start with Johnson. In your mind, and you know, you've studied a lot of Prime Ministers, you, you've, you've studied a lot of general elections. What's the main legacy of Boris Johnson? How has he changed British politics? Oh, the answer to that question is easy. It's Brexit, Brexit and Brexit. Um... After all, Boris Johnson was the most visible public figure on the Leave side in the 2016 EU referendum. It's not an unreasonable supposition that perhaps the Leave side would not have won if he hadn't decided to throw in his lot with them. Um, so point one is played an instrumental role in getting the uh, Leave majority in the referendum. And then he was eventually uh, after becoming Prime Minister in July uh, 2019, um, he was the Prime Minister who, A, managed to strike a deal with the European Union um, that he found it possible to sell, albeit there are aspects of that deal that he's now uh, trying to reverse. Um, uh, and uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, persuaded the opposition parties to let him hold an election, which he duly won, and within six weeks, seven weeks of that election, um, Brexit was delivered. And then, despite uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, by the end of that year, just the, the agreement was unveiled on Christmas Eve, uh, managed to get a trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union that essentially encapsulated what came to be known as the hard Brexit uh, vision of Brexit, that is that basically we uh, did not agree necessarily to continue aligning our regulatory framework with that of the European Union. As a result, therefore, we're very clearly out of the single market, uh, we're very clearly out of freedom of movement. Um, and uh, we therefore have, he's also, or his government has been responsible for the very particular form of Brexit uh, that we are now living under, albeit one whose full operation still isn't in place, not least because, ironically, we're still not controlling our borders when it comes to the movement of goods is concerned. We've repeatedly uh, put off 
uh, actually imposing uh, uh, control on the uh, goods that are coming into uh, the United Kingdom. But you know, there are still some few rough edges. But yeah, Johnson delivered the referendum vote, arguably. Johnson certainly delivered Brexit itself, and Johnson's government also determined the shape of Brexit that we eventually ended up with. That's a very, very substantial legacy. It's one of the biggest decisions to be made by any UK government since 1945. His misfortune, of course, is that after that, everything was overtaken by events. Within uh, six weeks of Brexit being delivered, we were into lockdown. Um, and really, the rest of his uh, administration, no fault of his own, has been about reacting to events, essentially one COVID and two Ukraine. He also fundamentally changed his party. Uh, the 2019 general election, we saw an acceleration of the shifts that really uh, began to take place uh, under Theresa May. We saw the Conservatives uh, win uh, and demolish a large chunk of the uh, red wall in the north. We saw them win large numbers, arguably unprecedented numbers of uh, uh, working class votes. Uh, they did very well among non-graduates, among pensioners. And we saw the so-called realignment of the Conservative Party electorate. And we saw the party winning seats that it had not won for decades or had not won ever before in history. And that introduced this debate that I want to ask you about, which is to what extent is British politics today still in a state of realignment? Or was that unique to the Brexit debate and to perhaps the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn? Where are we now with this political realignment of British politics? Um, the answer to that, Matthew, is that we're certainly quite a way away from um, where, where we were in 2019, uh, though probably still not quite back to where we were in 2015. Now, what I mean by that, if you actually look at the levels of support for the Conservative Party at the moment, uh, broken down by how people voted in 2016, support for the Conservatives at the moment in the polls is amongst Leave voters, is running at just over 50% uh, compared with figures of around the three quarters at the time of the 2019 general election. In other words, you know, turning that into a, a, a rough calculation, around one in three of those Leave voters who voted for the Conservatives in 2019 are currently minded not to do so. Yes, the party has lost support amongst Remain voters, but of course it didn't have that many in the first place, only around 20% of Remain voters were voting for the Conservatives in uh, 2019. Uh, so the truth is that the vast bulk of the losses that the, the party has uh, suffered since 2019, and it's really over the course of the last six months, has been amongst Leave voters. Now, some of that's inevitable. It's just got so many more Leave voters. The truth is, actually, if you were tracking this throughout the whole of this parliament, it was very clear early on that the Leave element of the Tory coalition was the more fragile element for quite a long time. Uh, support for the Conservatives in this during this Parliament amongst Remain voters was running at above uh, what it was uh, in 2019. In other words, some traditional Tory voters who perhaps were uh, put off by Brexit had returned to the fold. Um, it's really only in the wake of Partygate that support for the Conservatives amongst Remain voters has fallen back below 2019 levels. Um, but when we you look at the period in 
the autumn of 2020, uh, before the vaccine rollout, when Labour and the Conservatives were neck and neck in the polls. You know, where had the Conservatives lost ground? It was primarily amongst Leave voters. When the Conservatives recaptured some of their lost ground uh, in the wake of the vaccine rollout, you know, that recovery recurred disproportionately amongst uh, Leave voters. So uh, to that extent, at least, certainly as far as the Conservatives are concerned, another party whose uh, support was most radically reshaped, we're certainly in a very different position from where we are now in 2019. Indeed, at the moment, the Conservative vote is not even shaped by Brexit as much as it was in 2017, although it is still shaped more than it was in 2015. The party is still, as compared with 2015, losing more ground amongst Remain voters than it is amongst Leave voters. In the case of Labour, well, actually Labour have not made a great deal of progress amongst Remain voters since uh, 2019. It's up a bit, but it's not up a great deal. Um, its progress has been disproportionately amongst uh, Leave voters. And in effect, you know, one way of looking at where we're at the moment, the reason why Labour are 10 points ahead in the polls is because basically support for Labour amongst Remain voters is roughly the same as support for the Conservatives amongst Leave voters. Labour are ahead, well, one, um, because it's got more support amongst Leave voters than the Conservatives have amongst Remain voters. The second thing, of course, and now this is going part of the, uh, the background story to all of this, is that the Labour Party is doing very well amongst those people who couldn't vote in 2016 because younger voters are much more likely to vote Labour. Younger voters are much more likely uh, to be pro in, in, in being in favour inside the European Union. And I think, you know, there's a reminder here. I mean, there's a lot, lot of talk about, you know, how the Conservatives had uh, framed this fantastic coalition that was going to keep Labour out of power for years. The flaw in that argument always was, look at the demographic profile. Unless the Conservatives at some point can begin to persuade uh, middle-aged voters to vote for them, let alone younger voters, then basically in, a, in the longer term, they're heading down a demographic um, uh, a slalom that uh, is going to take them on a downward path because their vote is so heavily concentrated amongst younger, uh, older voters who, you know, alas, are going for the most part depart the electorate more uh, earlier than younger voters. Let, let me come in on that just to put the counter case to that. One is, uh, if you look at the Conservative electorate, as, as you know, it's become much more dependent upon the over 55s. Labour, I think over the last decade, have lost a considerable number of over 55s and millions of pensioners and, and Labour's one of Labour's big problems, which very few people have really zoomed in on at the moment, is is Labour's weakness among pensioners in in Britain. Um, pensioners who are about 30 points on average more likely to vote than the young Zoomers uh, and the younger end of the millennials. But there's also something else going on with the Labour electorate, which I think is also not uh, attracting as much attention as it should do. Labour is increasingly becoming dependent upon university graduates, uh, minority ethnic voters, uh, students, uh, middle-class professionals, uh, all of whom also congregate in the same kinds of areas in very large numbers, big cities, university towns, and so forth. There is still, I think, an argument that actually the geography of the, let's call it the new conservative vote, even if it is beginning to, to fragment, but the geography of that vote, more working class, non-graduate, a little bit older, uh, more dependent on England, is perhaps more efficient 
over the next few years, perhaps next decade or so, than labour, which appears to be narrowing rather than widening. What do you say to that? Yes, there's a, there's a certain amount of truth to what you're saying, but there are also a couple of counterpoints. Counterpoint number one is that as a result of doing relatively well in so-called red wall seats in the north of England and Midlands, what the Conservatives have done is they, they started to win rather more seats with relatively small electorates. One consequence of which is that the boundary redistribution that's currently going on is not going to benefit the Conservatives to anything like the same extent as it would have done if it had happened when it should have done, you know, either in the 2010-15 Parliament or again before the 2019 general election. Uh, the Conservatives are going to find that some of their red wall seats are going to disappear as a result of the uh, parliamentary uh, redistribution. That's number one. Number two, if you're saying to me it's going to be very difficult for Labour Party to win an overall majority, absolutely, I would fully agree with you. But the other thing we have to bear in mind is that the Conservative Party have no friends inside the House of Commons. Uh, there is, I think, at the moment, not a single party that would be willing to help to sustain a minority Conservative minority administration, probably not even the DUP. So it's very much an asymmetric contest. Once the Conservatives are below, let's say around 320 seats, uh, bearing in mind that Sinn Féin won't take those seats, then it's probably going to be impossible for them to sustain a minority administration. Now, we then get into all sorts of interesting games and speculations about what deals Labour would have to make with whom in order to be able to sustain a minority administration. And some people inside the Labour Party would say they don't have to make uh, many uh, deals at all. Uh, the point is that Liberal Democrats don't want to put, uh, want to, uh, will be willing to allow Labour to run administration. Uh, they will not be allowing, willing to allow the Conservatives to do so. The same is true of the SNP. The same is true of Plaid Cymru. So yes, um, the Conservatives still have some advantage in terms of the geographical efficiency of their vote, although they now have less of an advantage in terms of its uh, concentration uh, in, in larger constituencies where they would benefit from the redistribution. But they still have this fundamental... I mean, it was their advantage in 2019 in the sense that they were the only party that was representing the leave end of the coalition. They, 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 they got all the leave voters, virtually all of them, to vote for them. That was the basis of their success. But with that gone, seemingly, the leave vote much more fragmented, you then have to realise that once the Tories are sitting below about 320 seats, basically it's adieu. Coming back to you on that, I think there are two things I'm I'm I want to I want to just probe a little bit. One is we often talk as though the Leave Remain divide in British politics is now moving into the rearview mirror, but we also know that the Leave Remain divide was always something of a proxy for the values divide between what we might call social liberals at one end and tradi traditionalists uh, at the other end or you know cultural conservatives we know that those groups think very very differently about things that i think are going to remain quite salient in british politics uh things like immigration uh the small boats crossing the english channel perhaps even some of these cultural debates about women's rights or free speech admittedly they're lower down the order for voters but this value divide that we've talked a lot about in political science is almost certainly going to remain a permanent feature of British, if not Western politics, because it is anchored in the education divide between university graduates who tend to be more liberal and non-graduates who tend to be more conservative. And that is now being reinforced by two things, by generational change, 
with younger voters being a little bit more liberal, a little bit more likely to go to university, and also geography, where increasingly the big cities, university towns are drifting away from everybody else. So I would suggest that actually, even if Remain and Leave becomes a less visible fault line in British politics, I think actually these value divides will find their expression through ongoing debates over diversity, over borders, over migration. And so if you're Liz Truss, our new 56th Prime Minister, the person who's going to try and put this coalition back together again, a little bit like Humpty Dumpty, you're probably going to be wanting to find new issues that cut across the electorate in the way that Brexit did. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and I invite your listeners to keep their eyes open for the launch of this year's British Social Attitudes Report, which is uh, scheduled for the 22nd of this month, in which that we do indeed do quite a lot of analysis looking at that proposition. And without being able to give too much away at this point, uh, let me make two points. Yes, the potential at least for these so-called cultural war issues and woke versus anti-woke to um, align with social conservative versus social liberal and then with uh, remain and leave and conservative versus labor. That potential is certainly there. Um, and you can see how uh, the conservatives might hope to be able to get some of their, their lost leave support back for emphasis on that issues. But the second point I would make, Matthew, is, that th is this. Well, as you know perfectly well, um, university graduates are increasing in number, have increased in number. And the truth is that this, the socially liberal position is increasingly becoming the more popular position. So again, the challenge that the Conservative Party faces is that the constituency on which you might want to build that foundation is one that does seem to be declining over time. One of the uh, strategies that people have talked about in terms of how the Conservatives find their way back to power or, or to holding power in 2024, early 25, is, is this. And, and I think I share this view, actually, so let me put it to you. There is absolutely no way after Brexit and Boris Johnson that the graduate-heavy, middle-class, southern blue wall is ever going to vote Conservative at the next general election, and that actually the only way forward for the Conservative Party at this current time is to lean in to the groups that voted for the party in 2019, that there are about 30 or so Labour seats today that look very much like many of the seats that the Conservative Party won from Labour in 2019. I'm thinking about seats like Yvette Cooper's seat, uh, seats in Yorkshire, seats across what you might call the Red Wall 2.0, and that if you accept my suggestion that there is no way that people like Dominic Raab are going to hold their seat at the next election as graduates and Zoomers and millennials, social liberals push back against uh, 14 years of conservative rule, and in particular push back against Brexit and the legacy of Boris Johnson, which for many of these voters is a profoundly negative one, that actually that really only leaves the Conservative Party with one way to go at the next election, which is to lean in and to try and continue this unfolding 
realignment because the nightmare scenario i would suggest for the conservative party is that they lose both flanks at the same time they simultaneously fail to hold the red wall and they simultaneously get smashed by the lib dems and the labor party across a big chunk of the southern blue wall and that introduces a sort of 1997 2001 scenario where the conservative party is left with nowhere to go for votes I mean, how plausible do you find this lean-in uh, strategy, or do you think it's uh, adrift with what we're seeing in the polls? Well, I think, to be honest, we've then your your comment takes us on to well, what do we think that Liz Truss is going to do, and in particular, um, the fact that Liz Truss is facing an enormous economic crisis. Um, and I, you know, we can, you and I can spend many hours arguing about the social profile of the election, but you know, it may well be that we're back to an era in which it's the economy stupid. So anyway, Liz Truss's vision of Brexit, albeit one to which she was a late convert, seems to be rather closer to what we might call the elite libertarian conception of Brexit, which regards it as a way of trying to reduce regulation, reduce the role of the state. Um, you know, move something towards Singapore foreign terms. We, we, we are now in this trust, as opposed to Boris Johnson, having have a politician whose instincts are much further to the right economically than those of Boris Johnson, who in many respects was quite eclectic in his attitudes towards uh, aspects of the role of the state. That's not true of Liz Truss. Um, now, as a reason, certainly the tenor of her campaign, her leadership campaign, has been one which has, well, I've been very explicit about it. She has said, we shouldn't be looking at um, a, a taxation policy through a redistributive lens. We shouldn't be looking at economic policy through a redistributive lens. Um, in, in a somewhat of an echo of the trickle-down economics of the Thatcher idea, you know, if the, if, the, if the rich are better off, they'll promote the kind of economic growth from which the rest of us will all profit. Now, I put it to you, Matthew, that at least is not the kind of message which we know that many of those who voted leave have because many a leave voter when they said take back control were looking for a state that would indeed take back control that would be interventionist and if you look at the attitudes of uh, work i've done on people's attitudes towards uh, regulation it's not clear that even amongst leave voters there's a particular appetite appetite for the deregulated state that you know was there in the trade and cooperation agreement or is potentially there in the trade and cooperation agreement and certainly where, where the noises we hear about some of those around Liz trust so the and the, the truth is at the moment we are talking about a situation in which i mean even she is going to be pressured into major levels of spending um though whether we target less well off who who, who knows um but therefore in the end you know point one is her fate and that of her government is going to be determined by whether or not it is felt to have dealt with this economic shock adequately. And basically, the bet that she is making, which is that um, if I lower taxes, indeed, the economy will grow, proves to be right. The potential downside, of course, which you know, we're already hearing you know, echoes of, is, is there a risk that both in reducing taxation and increasing uh, uh, spending that the markets will get nervous, the foreign exchange markets will get nervous. We end up in a in a uh, financial crash. And here is the really really tough thing for the Tories, right? 
which is that you know it may already be the case to be honest that their fate is sealed because no government uh that has presided or virtually no government that has presided over an economic shock has managed to keep itself in power at the next election and i think certainly if there were to be a run on the pound forget it that will be the end but you know just bear in mind 1967 devaluation Howard Wilson loses in 1970. 1976, uh, in a major fiscal crisis, we have to go to the IMF. Uh, Jim Callahan loses in 1979. 1992, Black Wednesday, run on the pub, first time for the Tories as opposed to Labour. Uh, never recovers, 1997, they lose. Gordon Brown, financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Quite a lot of the potential economic consequences in the end are to be mitigated, not least perhaps as a result of some of the actions that Gordon Brown took. But he could never recover politically. So it's already there's already a question mark about whether or not this Conservative administration can recover from the double shock. It's had the misfortune of suffering a double shock, COVID and now Ukraine. Uh, but certainly if it were to end up spooking the markets, then that would probably be curtains. And in a sense, it doesn't matter how people voted in 2019 or what are their views about Brexit or what are their views about immigration or cultural war issues, etc. The truth is the party will just simply lose too much ground across the board and it will end up being out of its ear. That is the, the risk that potentially faces this government. And it seems to me that's a very plausible risk given, you know, we're, we're now also on the cusp of hearing Liz Truss's plan for energy, another hundred billion that's going to be spent on introducing an artificial uh, energy price cap and essentially reimbursing energy companies, which is probably not going to be a good look. Uh, we're hearing stories about workers' rights potentially being watered down, uh, which again, I struggle to see how that will go down well in areas like the Red Wall. And I think for me, John, I think you've hit the, ha hit, hit the nail on the head when you um, talk about this tension between the liberal lever philosophy that was always at the heart of the Brexit project for conservative elites and for conservative donors and the more culturally conservative vision of what Brexit was all about, which was shared by many of the people who voted for the Conservative Party in 2019. Now, if you look at the electorate, as, as you will know and as um, recent surveys have shown, that sort of economically liberal and socially liberal view of Brexit is, in, is actually a very small rump of Absolutely. the electorate. It is a yeah. small group, yet it dominates the city of London, it dominates conservative donors, it dominates conservative uh, MPs, certainly the current administration. And I would suggest, therefore, that actually, you know, one of one of the issues here about this this ongoing realignment that is also we can see in america we can see parts of it in france we can see parts of it in other european countries where we are seeing many of the same shifts we are seeing workers drifting to the right non-graduates drifting to the right uh, and we are seeing university graduates drifting to the left uh, increasingly the big cities and so on but i would suggest that actually it may be here that it is the conservative party itself which is just unable to make the most of that, that all realignments are about supply and demand, yep. that if there is demand there for a fundamental break from the political consensus, there has to be a party that can supply that demand with a message that meets it, both economically and socially. And, uh, you know, as you say, you look at the polling, you look at the surveys, 
if you ask red wallers where are you on tax and spend they're basically the opposite of uh wanting a davos on thames they are basically saying i just want good public services i'm happy to pay a bit of tax for that i want the nhs to work i want the schools to be good i want crime to be resolved i'm not really interested in slash and burn regulation so it may be that actually the conservative party itself is just an inadequate vessel for meeting the public mood that unites a large chunk of the country yeah i you know that that's undoubtedly a, a risk and again you know uh, you know one of the interesting things about public reactions to the expansion of uh, expenditure during covid is that it hasn't so far at least produced what us political scientists call a thermostatic reaction i.e people saying oh my god public expenditure has gone up a great deal we need to stop all of that um, uh, we've, we're looking at a position where the public are deeply unhappy about the state of the health service, but they still want it to be funded uh, through taxation. Um, we know that the public have become more sympathetic towards welfare uh, than uh, was the case, certainly under New Labour. Um, so yes, the, um, absolutely. It's not entirely clear that the Conservative Party understands the character of the electorate that brought it to power, because of course, it's not a traditional conservative electorate, and therefore, in the end, it just may not it may just may not know itself. So, it may well be that the, you know, despite all the opportunities that you have quite rightly pointed out, and I've kind of said, well, yes, but um, uh, any potential divide has to be politicised, and it may we may discover that election on the one hand, the conservatives don't manage to connect with the socially conservative anti woke section of the electorate. Uh, successfully for the reasons we've just said and meanwhile of course the opposition parties are not wanting to play that game so between that uh, although one side might be quite happy to try and um, re-invoke the spirit of brexit it doesn't know how to do so and meanwhile the other side doesn't want to do so and at least in england and wales at least we can leave aside scotland um, uh, actually the politicization that's required isn't there because it's basically not being supplied are adequately on either side of the argument. Do you think that there's another big risk for the Conservatives uh, here regarding how the mood on Brexit is beginning to change? And you've talked a lot over the last five, six years about the public mood on Brexit. And, you know, in in our world, we've talked a lot about polarisation over Brexit and, and how Leavers and Remainers have remained fairly fixed in their views about whether they think it was the right or wrong decision and what would happen at any second referendum. But it seems to me, looking at the numbers, and you know more about this than I do, but um, there is a risk for the Conservative Party today, which is that the public mood does appear to be moving on what is now the signature issue for the Conservative Party, that if you ask voters, was it the right decision? Was it the wrong decision? We have actually seen a bit of a shift. I mean, how how dramatic is this shift? Am I overplaying it, or is actually Brexit regret beginning to seep through into the system? Um, but I think point one is certainly the claim that Remain voters have said, "Okay, it's all over. That's it. End of story." That is not true. Um, you're, I mean, there, there, there are a couple of measures kicking around. One, of course, is one you referred to, which is the uh, people being asked, well, do you think uh, the decision to leave the European Union was right or wrong? Um, latest averages from YouGov who asked this question regularly, 50% think it was wrong, 37% think it was right. 
that is a record number. And yes, part of that is with that question is a certain amount of regret amongst uh, seemingly amongst Leave voters. On the question of how people would vote if we have another referendum, which of course is not really now looking back to the decision was made, but what decision should we make now, given we're already outside? Well, the latest average is 54% of people would vote to be inside the European Union, 46% out. That's as high a level of support for being inside the EU since Brexit day, although it's not unprecedented for some of the Remain versus Leave figures doing uh, before before uh, January 2020. Um, it's, however, I mean, the principal driver of that, I mean, yes, in most polls, there are slightly more Leave voters who say that they would, sorry, slightly fewer Leave voters who say that they would now vote to stay out than there are 2016 Remain voters who say they would vote to rejoin. But the principal reason why we have this lead for being inside the EU, and frankly, I think there's probably been a majority of being inside the European Union, perhaps for at least the last four years, is the is the people who didn't vote in 2016. They consist of two that they consist of two groups. Group number one is the ones who were too young. And coming back to what we said earlier, they are overwhelmingly pro being inside the EU. If they express the view, there's something like 80% of them saying, yeah, I would vote to join the European Union. There's a second group of the people who could have voted but didn't. They're also disproportionately younger, you know, younger people less likely to vote. They're not as pro-EU as the group who couldn't vote in 2016, but they are also on balance pro-EU. And it's the views of this group that are essentially generating the pro-in-EU majority. And I have to say, my current view, Matthew, and you know, maybe I'll live long enough to be proved right or proved wrong, is that I suspect that the 2016 referendum will prove to be no more successful than the 1975 referendum was in settling this issue. Britain is still divided down the middle on this subject. Um, in Scotland, of course, it's a crucially live issue because it's been driving the increase in support for independence. In Northern Ireland, it's a crucial issue because they argued about the protocol and it looked as though it's helped to drive some increase in support for unification. And England and Wales at the moment, it's not a political issue, but I just keep on asking myself, for how long will it be the case that all the opposition parties in England and Wales decide that they don't want to revisit the Brexit issue? I'm pretty clear Labour Party won't want to do so between now and uh, the next general election. But the truth is, there is going to be a space opening up, uh, up there. It's never been obvious to me why the Democrats shouldn't necessarily want to be willing to talk about it. But, mm. you know, there we are. Um, but, but, but you know, the honest, so I, I think we can exaggerate the extent to which there's Brexit regret. I think we can obviously, you know, it's still only 54, 46, but that said, it's not gone away. And again, the chain, the, you know, the gradual, uh, the demographic profile of the Brexit vote is one which you just kind of look forward, you know, unless at some point, today's younger and middle-aged people are persuaded that actually Brexit was, isn't so bad after all, and maybe we should live with it. Unless they are persuaded, we are just increasingly going to be in a position where support for being inside the European Union is just gradually going to increase. And the question is, when does it get picked up? So here's a flip side to that briefly. The difference that I see between 1975 and today 
is the benchmarking case, is the comparison with the European Union. Um, Mid-1970s through the 80s, the argument that many European community members were outperforming the UK was not was not a difficult one to make. But I think today, if you look at, you know, let's just scan Europe, Germany in the midst of a profound energy crisis, looming recession, France, political turmoil, Marine Le Pen's just gone mainstream, Italy, a sort of pseudo uh, far right party is about to win the elections, finish first this month. Uh, the Eurozone is stagnating, arguably just as much, if not more so, as the UK economy. The Euro currency looks just as weak as sterling, if if not weaker. Um, and the southern periphery, uh, you know, Italy, Spain, Portugal, are, are still grappling with, with many of the problems that they've long been grappling with, including very worrying levels of debt. Uh, and that growing divergence between North and South, which which some economists, Ashoka Modi and others, have pointed to as being a long-term problem. So my, I guess what I'm saying is I don't dispute the demographic trends. I agree with you. I think, you know, I look at my, my students, you know, the students arriving this month on campus were born in 2004. You know, they were too young to vote in the Brexit referendum. They are overwhelmingly pro-European and uh, they are very socially liberal on all the issues we've been discussing, migration, diversity, gender identity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they are still pragmatic. I mean, I think they are still voters who will compare and contrast the UK with how the European Union is doing. And the argument in political science is very much about benchmarking that Brexit Britain will now forever be benchmarked against the performance of the European Union. And unless the European Union is powering ahead, then the case for holding that second referendum will be a very difficult one to make. Yes, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot, a lot of what you just articulated about the economic argument was one of the reasons why the Leave side were able to win uh, back in 2016. Um, and you know, I think uh, undoubtedly, um, what will matter ultimately, given we are still talking about a country that's divided down the middle, uh, anyway, certainly for the next you know, five or 10 years, is a question of how well does the United Kingdom do in the long term outside the European Union, not just economically, but I would also suggest geostrategically. Um, you know, does the European Union become geostrategically more important? And you know, one of the possible long-term consequences of the Ukraine crisis is that the European Union becomes geostrategically much more important, including its largest member, Germany, than has hitherto been the case. But yes, also, how well does the European Union fare economically vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the United Kingdom? Absolutely, uh, I, I would entirely agree, I, I agree with that. But of course, what is also true is that, as you've also articulated, that for, for you know much of the core Remainer vote is a cultural uh, vote, not an economic vote. But yes, to win a referendum. Yeah. You would you you would need to add to it the economic vote. Um, so you know I'm not I'm you know it took um, 30 years 40 years for us to have another referendum uh, after 1975, um, but it only took a few years before we started the debate because of course the Labour Party very rapidly said we should get out now that that lost and eventually it was quiet. But then you know it didn't take that long again before um, you know UKIP began to be born and the, the Conservatives turned turtle. So it might take quite a while, and we don't know in the end who 
uh, who will pick it up. But the point is that it looks as though there it's likely still to be an issue with which there will be quite a substantial potential constituency of support. And that certainly pressure group activity towards saying, you know, we should be going back in, we made a mistake, or we should at least be going back into the, into the single market, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I suspect that pressure group activity is going to be with us. The last question on uh, Scotland, another area where you've done a lot of work. Um, if I read you correctly, you're really implying that many of these demographic shifts will, will probably bring the question of Europe back onto the table uh, of British politics in, in the not too distant future. I, looking at the demographic shifts in Scotland and looking at support for independence among the under 35s, I think I'm right in saying that somewhere in the region of 60 or 70 percent, possibly higher, uh, are supportive of um, uh, Scotland's independence. Is it therefore inevitable that we are going to have a second referendum on independence? I mean, where if you have to, if you were looking ahead at the the rest of the twenty twenties and just guesstimating how this plays out, what's <laughs> what what what's your hunch? I know you don't like being pinned on no on, no no on it's predictions fine. No, and guesstimates, but but where does this go? Where does this debate? Oh, okay, well let me let, let, let me give you a, 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 at least one or two you know, plausible scenarios. So. Point one, you're right, there is now a, um, in, in exactly the same way as there's a marked relationship between age and attitudes towards uh, Brexit, there is now also a marked relationship between age and attitudes towards independence. That relationship is stronger now than it was in 2014 because the character of support for independence is different now since 2014. The issue of attitudes towards independence has become intertwined with people's attitudes towards the European Union. One of the ironies of the 2014 Scottish independence referendum is that the politicians spend hours arguing about whether or not an independent Scotland could be a continuing member of the European Union or not, which of course was the proposition being put forward by the SNP and the S side and the one upon which doubt was being cast by the Unionist side. That was a complete waste of time, that debate. I mean, we're talking, we're talking only about politicians not understanding their electorates. This was a clear case of politicians not understanding their electorates because we know there was no relationship between people's attitudes towards the European Union and whether they voted yes or no, because although the SNP's vision was of a, an independent Scotland within the European Union, um, there was always a minority of uh, yes support who said, what's the point of liberating ourselves from London, only to put ourselves into chains with Brussels. Oh, however, since 2016, the two issues have become intertwined. And if you look at the position now, amongst those people who voted remain, uh, a majority are in favour of independence, it tends to be around 55%. Amongst the minority, remember in Scotland it's very much a minority of people who voted leave, and the figure is only around 30%. So what was a non-existent divide is now a divide, point one. That helps to change the character of support, so younger people much more likely to be in favour. Graduates, by the way, in Scotland, probably at the margin now, more likely to be in favour, even though they're arguably middle class, and you might think have more, have, have more to lose. Um, and uh, what's also true is that you know, in Scotland now, we're looking, it's average recent polls, it's no 51, yes 49. It's been around the 50-50 mark, and sometimes even better for yes, ever since 2019. And you can show very, very clearly that all of the increase in support for 
independence occurred between 2019 and 2018, which is the crucial time period, occurred amongst Remain voters. So this is collateral damage about arising uh, 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 for Brexit. And of course, what Brexit has also done is it's fundamentally changed the intellectual question that would now be posed by a second uh, referendum. Last time it was simply, do you want to be inside or outside the United Kingdom? This time it is, do you want to be inside the UK, but outside the EU, or do you want to be outside the UK, but inside the European Union? And once you realize that that's the choice, then you realize you're now asking people to think about various trade-offs. So for example, which do you think is in Scotland's long-term interest? Is it to be part of a relatively small single market, viz the United Kingdom, but which at the one at the moment is your, it, it's both geographically closest to you, that's a trade advantage, and is also currently your biggest trade partner, or to be part of a much, much bigger single market, which however at the moment is only your second biggest trading partner, and it's a little bit further away, although it's not that far across the Irish Sea. Um, and of course, we know that, you know, if you change the terms of trade, the flows of trade change as well. Now, that's an interesting argument, but the point is it's a balance on making. You no longer simply say to people, you know, if you take step X, you'll cut yourself off from the world. If you take step Y, everything will be as you want it and as it is and as, and, and as you are familiar. And we can think of this with other, other aspects. Now, the honest truth is, I think, is that we have not had that debate in Scotland. But, i.e., because of COVID, etc., you know, we've not, we, the, the politicians on, on, not, on, not on either side have really been saying, well, this is what this issue is now about. What, you know, leaving aside the arguments about whether, whether or not the Scottish Parliament should or should not be able to hold a referendum on its own. What the Scottish government is telling us it is now going to do, and it started with a couple of relatively easy white papers, they've got to do the more difficult ones, is to come up with white papers in which they are meant to be giving us the intellectual case for being outside the UK but inside the EU and addressing some of the issues that I've just mentioned. And they at least will be trying to move the dial in their direction. At the moment, at least, and it seems to be that it's Liz Truss's view, the unionists are basically trying to kick the issue into the long grass. And by saying, you know, you don't have the right to hold a referendum, you had one eight years ago, et cetera, et cetera, and also trying to make claims that people don't want it. The honest truth is that if you are a yes supporter, you want a referendum to happen at some point, not necessarily in October 2023, as uh, Nicholas Sturgeon says, but definitely during the this parliamentary term by 2026. If you are no supporter, you take the opposite. And if you think about it, it's going, it, you're not going to persuade those people who are currently in favor of independence that the union is a really good thing by saying to them, you know what? I'm not going to give you the chance to express your view, okay? So and my own view is at the end of the day, if you want to make the union safe, you're going to have to move the dial of public opinion. The only reason why the union is in trouble is because a half of people in Scotland don't want to be part of it. And it will only ever be safe, it will only ever be legitimate if you've got clear majority support for being inside the UK. So my view is the UK government and unionists need to get involved in the debate. They don't want, of course, they don't think the debate should exist, but they cannot stop the debate 
happen. So that's point one. Now, of course, we're going to be into this legal argument about whether or not the Scottish Parliament can hold a referendum on its own. Uh, maybe it can, maybe it can't. In any case, we've now had a leak last Sunday that suggests that if the Supreme Court were to say it could, probably the UK government would legislate to basically make it impossible for them to do so. Now, what Nicola Sturgeon has said she would do in the wake of um, not being able to hold a referendum is to make the next general election in Scotland a referendum on independence. She doesn't have to make it a referendum on independence. Elections in Scotland are already a referendum on independence. In the 2021 Holyrood election, pretty much around 90% or so of those people who are currently in favour of independence voted for the SNP on the constituency ballot and less than 10% of the people who are currently opposed voted for the SNP. That is very, very different from the position in 2011 when the SNP got an overall majority. Then nearly 40% of people who at that stage weren't in favour of independence, but back to devolution, voted for the SNP because they thought the SNP could defend Scotland's interests. So um, unionists can say, oh, no, no you, you know, it, it, it won't just be about that. It'll be about your failures in education and health, etc. And of course, there are plenty of arguments about the SNP's record in office. However, the electorate have already decided that what matters to the most is the independence question. Now, that takes us to 2024. So I think, you know, the odds are Scotland, Scottish representation at Westminster is still going to be dominated by the SNP. And it's going to be an SNP, which is now very, very heavily dependent on the support of yes voters. And you have to think of the SNP as essentially as dependent on yes voters and needing to respond to what they want, as Boris Johnson in 2019 was dependent on me voters and had to deliver what they wanted. And I therefore take the view that, you know, what, now one, coming back to earlier conversation, it's still a pretty good bet for 2024 that we will end up with a home parliament in which Labour will be running a minority administration. We then get into a whole game about, you know, it will depend on the arithmetic as to whom they have to do a deal with. One possibility, by the way, is that they do a deal with the Democrats. And in the wake of that, although no party won't admit it, they do accept the idea of having some ref another referendum, this time on PR. It, maybe it goes through. And that, by the way, if we were to switch to proportional representation, the, the odds on the SNP ever having hinge party status at Westminster in the future will be much, much reduced. And that might provide a pathway whereby the referendum can indeed be put off for a long time. However, it may also be the case that the only way you can run administration at Westminster is at least with the tacit support of the SNP. A lot of people inside the Labour Party are saying, well, we'll just ignore them. We'll we will threaten them to, to, to bring us down. Well, bear in mind the character of SNP support. Maybe the SNP wouldn't move against them straight away, but I think the pressure on the SNP to bring Labour down, particularly if it looks as though uh, bringing them down with storming another home parliament, and then Labour really would be in a position where it would be difficult to avoid. Those are the circumstances in which then eventually, to be honest, I think it would be impossible to avoid the referendum. Yeah, no, I see that. I see that scenario playing out. I also see some profound arguments against independence um, 
that weren't uh, present at the at the first referendum, if, if if indeed the case was to vote to leave the UK to rejoin the Europe to to rejoin the European Union to have Scotland in Europe, that firstly will need to have support of the European Union, which I think for lots of different reasons is quite unlikely to give uh, a blank check to Nicola Sturgeon or whoever's leading the SNP at that time. And secondly, there are some pretty profound issues over what would happen to the border between what would be an EU member state in Scotland uh, and a non-EU uh, member state uh, in England. Um, and, and thirdly, I. Yes, I'm won over by the argument that identity will ultimately trump economics. I think that was that was one of the lessons of the last decade. It certainly was true of Brexit. But we do also know that economic arguments did actually have a bit of an impact around the margins on uh, some uh, voters at the Brexit referendum. We know that uh, uh, some voters that were risk-averse um, did indeed um, vote remain when, uh, in hindsight, they say they would have voted leave. And I think the economic argument in Scotland, in my mind, the economic case for an independent Scotland is a very different proposition from the economic case for a uh, an independent UK outside of the European Union. I mean, Scotland's economy cannot really function without the fiscal transfers coming from the rest of the UK, right? It's a completely different argument from can the UK survive outside of the European Union? Well, yes, I think everybody accepted economically that it probably could. It was an economic powerhouse in its own right. The Sco uh, an independent Scotland, very different proposition. Scotland that's dependent upon the UK for, for transfers, very, very different proposition. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I think in my mind the jury's out. Uh, will culture necessarily trump economics? I'm not 100% convinced, but yeah. let, you know, let, let, yeah. let, let's see. All of, all, all, you know, all of that's true. I mean, as I said to you, the, the arguments to be had. Um, yeah. The, yeah. the crucial thing to realise, however, is this. It comes back to the point we're now talking about relative risk. Yeah. Yes, you are right. I can still find your polls now that you know, somewhat more people think that um, independence would be economically disadvantageous than think it would be economically advantageous. I can find you a lot more people in Scotland who think that Brexit's going to be economically disadvantageous rather than advantageous. Yeah. So it, it may be in the end that for many, many people in Scotland, they will say, well, actually, no, it's a pretty rotten choice. Uh, they both of them have the downsides, but the question is, which of them is the bigger downside? Now, the argument about fiscal transfers is also uh, uh, you know, one of those. But of course, again, one of the ways in which the European Union has changed in the wake of COVID is that it has begun to put its toes in the water of fiscal transfer. So again, that's one of the area, one of the areas where uh, the debate has moved on. Yeah, you know, you're obviously right. There's a debate to be had. Economics was crucial to the uh, debate uh, in 2014. It would be crucial again. But the point is that uh, Brexit's changed. And you're right. Okay, the border will be an issue. It's how people react. Now, of course, is uh, the the truth is that. Um, and, you know, with some you know minor amendments, it, it won't be a border so far as uh, persons is concerned, with a, with a few exceptions. Um, so people will still be able to cross. There won't be passport control. Uh, uh, I, I, I suspect that you know we still got the the uh, the free trade, the, um, the the um, the 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 the, the, tra the free travel area with with Ireland, even though we're still now, but now we're outside the EU and Ireland is is inside. 
Um, on the European Union, well, I suppose I guess I'd take a slightly different view. I think I'd take the view that, that the United Kingdom exit from the European Union was arguably the biggest blow that the Union suffered uh, since 1957, and that getting Scotland back in would be uh, at least a way of beginning to uh, reverse some of that. And perhaps if you're thinking strategically in the long run, uh, might you think it will, it will make it more difficult for the United Kingdom to remain outside the European Union in the long term. Well, watch this space. Uh, John, most of our listeners will, will see you next um, presenting uh, the exit poll um, at the next general election. Hopefully you, another two years away now. <laughs> I, was just going to, I was just going to ask you finally, um, is that going to be um, in the next few months in your mind or are you assuming it's I'm, going I'm, to be I'm, 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 I'm assuming it's not going to be in the next few months. <laughs> look, look you, know, you know, the brutal truth is that Liz Truss, having got to the top of the greasy poll, were, is not going to want to put it at risk unless she is absolutely, absolutely sure that she is going to come out better as a result. Now, at the moment, the Conservatives are 10 points behind Labour in the polls. Yeah, maybe they will get a bit of a bounce uh, once Liz Truss becomes leader. Well, that's by no means guaranteed. She's not exactly generating a great deal of enthusiasm amongst the electorate. Um, but, you know, first of all, to get to a majority of one, again, remember earlier conversation, you've got to get a majority, otherwise you're probably stuck. That's at least a four-point lead. And of course, if you're going to replicate the 80 lead that you've got at the moment, you've got to be back up to about the 12-point lead that um, uh, Boris Johnson had, because it's all going to happen still on the current, very, very out-of-date um, parliamentary boundaries. Um, once you bear that in mind, you know, I, you know, the, the, the best advice anybody could give this prime minister is, well, look, at least you've got the possibility of being in office for two years. It might be a shitty two years, but at least you'll make the history books. And maybe along the way, you'll be able to do some of what you wanted to do. If you go in October, you may discover that you're one of the shortest prime ministers in British history. <laughs> well, uh, be warned, uh, Prime Minister Truss. John Curtis, thank you for uh, joining us today. I would recommend that everybody engages with um, uh, John's Twitter accounts, the What UK Thinks is an essential blog uh, for serious uh, political analysts, people who want to watch the polls, also what Scotland thinks, um, and also uh, John's work with UK in a Changing Europe. Um, and you can connect with all of that on Twitter. Um, John, thank you for your time. We know you're incredibly busy. And um, thanks for all of your analysis and insights. And I guess we're going to have to come back in five years or 10 years and see which of the guesstimates were right. I, I, I'm sure wrong. what you'll do, Matthew, is you will, you will, you will keep this recording. And <laughs> I back in three, John, I will... back in three or four years time and prove that everything you said was right and everything I said. <laughs> no, I will do no such thing. You're a man of integrity. I will, but I would never hold uh, a grudge against you, John. Okay. Have a great okay, day. Thanks all for uh, tuning in and uh, see you at the next podcast. Thanks.